right. <clears throat> Good morning. All right. I'm going to ask you guys a question this morning. Feel free to answer me. Um, want some participation. Somebody tell me something that you fear. And I don't mean it has to be the worst fear that you have, but something that you're, something that you're scared of. Somebody tell me, what, what are you scared of? What do you fear? Spiders. Okay. Anybody else? What is that? Failure. Let's see. That's getting real. What's that, Paul? Ah, a meaningless life. Matt, what was that? Succeeding at something that doesn't matter. What's that? I couldn't hear him. Oh, yeah, that's a very real fear. Absolutely. You guys got a lot deeper than I expected right off the bat. Thank you for being so honest. My answer is not really going to measure up to you guys, but when I think of something that I'm just scared of, let's say scared of, I am scared to walk into the ocean or lake barefoot or a creek when I cannot see the bottom. Anybody else have that? Just me? Okay. Yeah. It, uh, it freaks me out. I'm scared of the things that I can't see, you know? Some more kids here are probably scared of the dark, and that's all valid. Uh, fear is a very real thing. But... I want to talk about fear as, as we read um, in 1 Samuel. We've been studying through the life of David, and what we've seen in David is kind of this not enviable experience, if you will, of ups and downs, um, running away from God, running away from authority, returning to God, and very real fear that David has encountered in his life. And so that's what I want to talk about when I mentioned fear this morning. We see... Um, You've read in the scriptures that say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Is that familiar to anyone? A lot of times in the Old Testament, you'll read about kings that either did or did not fear the Lord and how that went with them in their lives. But what I want to make a distinction of is, is this. Martin Luther had a helpful way of talking about the fear of the Lord. But that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the fear of the Lord. And Martin Luther broke it down into two different categories, if you will. The first one would be what he would call servile fear, servile fear. And that's in, in terms of a servant and the fear that he would have for an abusive or um, a master, basically. He's a servant to someone, and servile fear is that your fear of punishment or of chastisement, okay? So that's servile fear. Now, it's not the best type of fear, certainly. The other side of that is what Luther would call filial fear fear, and that comes from a Latin word that has to do with family, okay? So filial fear would be the fear that a child would have towards their mom or dad, okay? But that you need to know that filial fear first comes from deep affection from mom or dad, okay? And any nerves or fear or worry from that child in this sense is that they wouldn't be able to please their mother or father that loves them like they should, okay? So a little distinction there. There's servile fear, and then there's what he called filial fear fear. And so I want you to keep the filial fear in your mind as we look at the passage today. So in chapter 30 of uh, 1 Samuel, if you haven't turned there, you can turn there or swipe there or whatever. Um, what we're going to see is that the fear of the Lord here in this chapter made all the difference in the life of David in this really interesting story. And, and you know, as Brad has preached and, and others have preached through this series, um, 
I think I take that for granted that just, just when he would point out, this is an amazing chapter. You know, this is a really interesting chapter. And it's like, when you sit down and study these things, we have the time to do that. It's like, they're really interesting chapters. And you really see a lot of similarities in your own life uh, with a lot of characters in Scripture. But I think the problem uh, that we as believers and certainly non-believers have when it comes to the fear of the Lord is that we neglect that a lot of times at different parts, portions of our lives. And when we neglect to fear the Lord, what we end up doing is carrying a heavy, heavy, heavy burden through our lives that we can't carry and that will certainly eventually crush us. So, sort of the big idea, the theme that we're going to look at today is the fear of the Lord conforms us to the image of Christ. The fear of the Lord conforms us to the image of Christ. And so, as we jump in, I want to review really quickly last week what we talked about. In chapter 29, David and his men, wanting to go and fight against his own people, the Israelites, with the Philistine army, were not permitted to do so. And I see God's grace in that situation. Instead, David and his men were instructed to return to Ziklag, where their encampment, if you will, was, and their people were, and their things were. So, they are instructed to go back there, and what we find out is that the Amalekites had raided Ziklag, okay? They had raided the camp where David and all his people and things and livestock were, and they burned the entire camp, and we're going to read about that in just a second. They didn't kill anyone, it says, but they took women, children, everyone. And there was a lot of distress there. David's men wanted to stone him because, well, look what he had led them to. And David was very, very distressed. And you also read and heard that there was weeping that day, weeping until they had no more strength to weep. Can you imagine that? But what we left off reading last week was that David strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And we talked, Brad talked a lot about what that means and God's faithfulness to us as we seek to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And so that's where we're going to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 30. And the first thing we see here is that we fear the Lord by turning to Him in His Word. We fear the Lord by turning to Him in His Word. And y'all bear with me. I'm going to read, um, it's a whole chapter, but, or most of a chapter, but just sections at a time. So we're going to start in verse 7. And it says this, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. And so Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He, the Lord, answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And I think, Brad, tell me if I'm wrong, last week we had discussed that that it had been over a year that we know of, that David had even sought the Lord in this way. He had been walking on his own without the counsel and guidance of the Lord. And David is graciously brought to this point, this point of turning back to God. And, And via, by way of God's priest, he seeks God's face using the ephod, it says. And he also listens for God's voice. He asks for God's direction, and you know what he receives? He receives God's word, literally. He asks for God's word, and God gives it to him, and he says, go. 
We moved to uh, Midtown two years ago, a little over two years ago, from Hernando, Mississippi. And uh, we, we packed up uh, everything, me and Brad, one day, and uh, managed to get the whole U-Haul up and moved uh, within a day, and some help from our uh, friends and family in our missional community, and uh, my family as well, and her, Ashley's family got all of that unloaded, except for one thing that we hadn't quite gotten yet. It was a gigantic swing set. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been to our house. Two-story swing set, uh, climbing wall, slide, ladder, monkey bars, what else? Swings, giant thing, okay? And needless to say, I was not excited to move that. So we eventually loaded it up in the back of her dad's truck and uh, on a trailer, and we got it to the house. And uh, with my excitement to reassemble that thing, you better believe it stood there for about a month and a half in the backyard in pieces. So um, some of you know Gowan from here at Mercy Hill, and, and Gowan, I, we used to work together before I was uh, here, and I think he heard me lamenting about it one day, that I had this giant thing in my backyard I had to put together, and there's one way to do it, and there's very limited hardware that we had, so Gowan offers graciously to help me put it together. And so Gowan comes over, and uh, before long, I am just blind rage against this thing, just fuming. Uh, like I said, there's one way to put this thing together, and I'm cursing the wood and metal that it was made of, and whoever designed this thing was obviously, I won't be ugly, but um, it was not good. And so basically, I tell you that to say, I needed a gentle nudge from my friend Gowan, and probably a little bit of rebuke, to realize that, hey, if I could just stop here for a moment, just back up a little bit, and listen to someone else besides myself, we'd probably get this thing put together. And guess what? About half an hour later, we did. And it's interesting how in this story, we see that David, the Lord, gently came to him. He stopped. He realized his need for the Lord's help, for the Lord's strength, for the Lord, someone beside himself and outside of himself, someone's guidance. And he turned to the Lord, and God gave him direction by his word. So I have a question for you. What do you do when you hit those walls? Now, my example is silly and a small one, but it's a real thing that happens from day to day. We run into things that we can't control, things that we are not equipped for. What do you do in those situations? Are you fighting against it? Are you cursing its existence? Or are you turning to the Lord in His Word first and foremost? What are you doing in those situations? This is where we find the Lord, right here, in His Word. This is why He's given it to us. I think it's foolish for us to brush it off as though it was something we just try to fit into our schedule. This is where we find Him. This is why at Mercy Hill Church you'll hear so much about God's Word and the importance of it and how we hold it in such high esteem. I love the Anglican Church because literally every, every time they have a service, they tote in Scripture high above everyone in the congregation, recognizing its importance and its power in the body of the church. It's just a beautiful thing to see. But what happens when we resist seeking God in His Word like David did? We live by our own Word, don't we? And I don't know about all of you, but my Word is not very powerful or reliable. 
We, we are led by our flesh often, and we're led by worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom, when heavenly guidance is given to us right here. And stress and fear and anxiety pile up as we don't turn to the Lord in His Word. Fear the Lord by turning to Him in His Word. I'm going to continue here in verses 9. I'm going to read through verses, uh, verse 16, so y'all bear with me for just a moment. In verse 9, it says, So David set out. Remember, he uh, had just had Ziklag burned, right? All of his things were taken. And it says, David set out. And the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. Did you hear that? 200 of his 600 stayed behind, okay? Remember that. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. Sound familiar? And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. What we see in these, these verses here is that we fear the Lord by trusting in his providence. And when I say providence, a helpful definition there is God's protective care. We fear the Lord when we trust in His providence. What did it say back in verse 9? It said, So David set out. If you'll remember just a moment ago, David sought the Lord, right? He went to the priest. The priest brings out the ephod, and David seeks the Lord. The Lord responds. The Lord directs him. And what does David do in verse 9? He sets out. He sought the Lord, the Lord responded, the Lord commanded him. And he had no choice, David, at this point, but to trust in God's providence. Because the Amalekites that they were seeking, these were nomads. And they're in the wilderness. And these nomads probably know the wilderness a little bit more than David, though he had been wandering for a bit himself. So the actual distance that David roamed was about 12 miles and we said that he found a young Egyptian in the desert, a servant that was left for dead by the Amalekites. And so David, once again, trusting in God's providence, his, his care for him, he set out. And we begin to see David's heart being changed as he sets out in the Lord's providence. We see first that God led him. David set out, but he didn't know where, right? He set out at the right time, in the right place, for the right person, in the right circumstances. That was no accident, was it? That's God's providence. This is the kind of thing that God does. 
But we also see David's obedience there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this horse a lot today. But once again, David sought the Lord. The Lord answered David. And he directed David. And then David obeyed his word. What a novel idea, right? Obeying the voice of the Lord. Do we do that? When we get instruction from God's word, what do we do with that? Do we admire it like you might a Christmas tree or something? Say, that is beautiful, God. Thank you for putting that there for me to admire. Or are we actually obeying his voice? The fear of the Lord we see taking hold in David's life once again as he trusted in God's providence. Let me share something with you guys you probably know. I've never had a baby before. And if I need to go on about that, either mom and dad or the public school system has failed you in some way. I've never had a baby, okay? But one thing I find pretty fascinating about this, and you moms, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I I did look up the research, but one thing I find pretty fascinating about babies and about pregnancies is, is babies' ability to recognize noises at a very early age. I'm going to give you a couple of facts about that. After about four to five weeks, a baby in the womb, cells begin to arrange themselves into a baby's face, their brain, their nose, their eyes, and their ears. At nine weeks, indentions appear where the baby's ears will grow. And at 18 weeks, babies begin to hear sounds. 18 weeks. At 24 weeks, babies become even more sensitive to sound. And around 25 to 26 weeks, babies actually respond to sounds in the womb. Now, keep in mind, obviously there's tissue and there's organs and there's other things, fluids and whatnot, that keep the baby from hearing perfectly. So muffled sounds for a baby would be about 50%, but they still hear and respond. In fact, they, they hear mother's body. They hear mom's heart, right, and other noises, internal noises. But the most significant sound that a baby hears at any of that time is mom's voice. And sometimes dad's voice if he's a real talker, I suppose. But by the third trimester, a baby can recognize their mom's voice. Isn't that something? Third trimester. A baby is totally reliant on mom's body for survival. But one of the elements of that survival is mom's voice. It grows in dependency but it also grows in familiarity as it clings to its mom. Baby knows mom's voice and comes to love and depend on mom, and as we know, that continues certainly after baby is born. David is floating about in the wilderness here, but he's trusting God to lead because he knew the voice of the Lord. He says he returned to the voice of the Lord. He sought him. His dependence was growing again. So as we realize that we must seek the Lord in his word and then listen to his word, then what? What did David do here? He trusted him and he followed him. You know, the Lord's speaking to you when you read his word. You don't have to wait for a lightning bolt to hit you or a light to come on. As you read it, that's his word. (laughs) And that's him speaking to you. And you know what? As you pray back to him, you know what that's called? Communicating. You are communicating with the Lord as you read his word and as you pray. 
follow his voice, follow his commands. And, and by the way, in this section of Scripture, David could have killed this Egyptian right then. Shouldn't he, he, Maybe he should have, right? The servant of the band of raiders that just took all his people and all his things, but he showed mercy to this guy. And even in that, you see the Lord working in David's heart. We like to do things ourselves, though, I think. Um, we like to trust in ourselves, our intuitions, right? Our patterns and our habits. But I think that that leads to a lot of bitterness. It makes us easily angered, I think. I think it makes us short-tempered and very, very self-absorbed as we trust in ourselves more than the Lord. And I think ultimately it makes us very, very prideful. But God is graciously speaking and leading and caring for us, isn't He? So how can we ever assume that we don't need that? But when we don't turn to Him, when we don't rely on Him, that's exactly what we're saying. I'm going to continue in the story here in verse 17. We've just seen God's providence leading David to the right person at the right time. Picking up in uh, verse 17, it says, so they've just found this Egyptian has led them to these Amalekites, okay? David struck them down from twilight until the next, excuse me, until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 men, young men, who mounted camels and fled. Um, Sorry. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. So what we see here in this section is we fear the Lord by walking in His power. We fear the Lord by walking in His power. As we just said, this Egyptian that they happened upon, right, in the wilderness, led them right to the ones that had all of their people, all of their things. They trusted, David trusted the Lord. He followed Him, and he was led exactly where he needed to go, recovered everything that was taken. Nothing was missing, but also all of the spoil of these Amalekites and all of their flocks, and all of their herds. And they said, this is David's spoil. What do you see there? Again, we see that David sought the Lord, right? The Lord answered. The Lord spoke. The Lord commanded. David obeyed. David trusted. And God empowered David to victory. You see that pattern? It's not just for David. David feared God here by walking in his power, a power greater than himself. Brad shared a little bit with you guys about me, but um, a little bit more of that information. Uh, from about 2006 to 2011, I had a pretty bad opiate addiction, and it cost a lot of, um, a lot of everything. Um, and... I was made at, 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 well, let's, let me back up a little bit. From 2006 to 2011, a lot of struggles, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. However, in God's providence, I was uh, in some serious legal trouble in 2011, one of the uh, things I'm most thankful for in my life. 
And the consequences of this legal action required that I go to recovery meetings, and maybe some of you have been in that, those rooms before. And I, um, I had trouble because, yes, I was a believer, but I had trouble rec reconciling the things that were being taught in AA or NA and, and bringing those in with Scripture, right? just didn't jive. And say what you will about those. I'm not saying that I'm right there, but it just didn't jive for me, okay? But what I did learn in those meetings was, number one, the power that the addiction had over me. But number two was the power of honesty and community. You know, I might not believe everything in the big book of AA or the other one for NA, but you can't deny the power of being honest before God, and you can't deny the power of community and support. I realized in those meetings that the power to overcome was there. I had just believed lies for a lot of years and not really fought against them with the truth, and that was the key. The honesty was the key but also the community of like-minded people that were trying to get help. And so it is in this life as a believer. That's why we stress community so much in this church and this fellowship. My point there is that David came to a point of realizing he could not fight this battle alone. And he trusted in a power that was much greater than himself. And the Lord delivered him, didn't he? But the same power that I am talking about and the same power that David fought with is the same power that you have by way of the Holy Spirit if you belong to Jesus. You know that, right? You know you have the Spirit, I hope you do, if you belong to Christ. And the same power to walk in freedom, and I use the word victory lightly, I don't want to make any promises for anything crazy, but victory, that power is available to us in the Spirit. David turned to the Lord in his word. The Lord answered. David listened. David obeyed. And God empowered him to walk in victory. We can either accept God's power or not. And God is gracious enough to let you and me fall over and over and over again until we break if we have to. And then in his grace, he lifts us up again. We don't have to have that much heartache in our lives. We can trust in his power and surrender in that. So let's continue with the last little bit of this chapter. In verse 21, I'm going to read these 10 verses really quickly. It says in verse 21, David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David. Remember that a moment ago. 200 stayed back and 400 went into battle. Okay? And who had been left at the brook Bazor, and they went out to meet David and meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. And then all the wicked and worthless fellows among them, among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? 
For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. And then they, they shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for, for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev, and Jatir and Aror and Sifmoth and Eshtemoah and Rakal and in the cities of the Jeremielites and the cities of the Kenites and Horma and Borashan and Atak and Hebron, it's a mouthful, and all the places where David and his men had roamed. So lastly, as we think about the fear of the Lord in this passage, we fear the Lord by overflowing with His grace. We fear the Lord by overflowing with His grace. David just followed the Lord. He defeated the Amalekites, regained all of the spoils, all of his family. It said his two wives were rescued. That's a big deal. His livestock, and then some. And now David approaches these 200 men, it said, who were too exhausted to go into the battle. And they'd been roaming quite a long way before that. And what does David do as he approaches these men? He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't shame them because they didn't go into the battle all swole up like the others did. What does it say? It says he greets them. David greets them. And I have to imagine in Hebrew, at this time, it's highly possible that David said shalom to them. Peace and prosperity to you. He greeted them. Let me read verses 22 through 25 again. I think this is an important thing for us to go away with today. All the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man might lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And David made it a statue and a rule. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. David reminded all of these men, all of them, that this was the Lord's victory. It wasn't theirs. This was the victory of the Lord. And therefore, all of the spoils of the Lord's victory goes to all of the Lord's covenant people. David didn't withhold what maybe we would say he could have withheld from those men. David in the grace of God, let it overflow to his men. He shared with them what was given to them by the Lord. Now, this is not an advocacy for socialism by any means, but what the Lord gave to them, he graciously gave to others. The fear of the Lord caused David to overflow with grace to others. And let me remind you that had David not turned back to the Lord at the beginning of this story, none of this would have happened. That's where it begins. This long cycle we've been talking about of repentance and faith and trust and obedience, it all begins in the same place, doesn't it? It all begins with repenting, admitting where we have wandered. And so David let the grace of God overflow to these men and his um, spoils and all of the things that they recovered. But I wonder what we do as 
as maybe we've received some, some grace from God through His Word as we've studied that and He's spoken to us. And, and Brad, as he was praying, mentioned Psalm 42, and that was just so, so timely for me today. Um, maybe God has blessed you in that way, but you don't share that with someone, you know. And oftentimes we forget, but those things are to be shared. That grace is to overflow from us. Maybe it's a financial blessing that God has given us in some way. Do we hoard that? Or do we pray and see how God might help us to use that in some way? Or do we let God's grace overflow to others in our lives? That's what David did, and he helped, helps us to understand what the fear of the Lord means. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means, um, but it's a great way to look at the fear of the Lord. And, and just to, to finish up here, we, we started out talking about the fear of the Lord conforming us to the image of Christ. And I want you to know that David here is meant in Scripture to point us to Jesus. He's meant to point us to the greater King who has the greatest grace, who overflows it to us over and over and over again. Jesus perfectly feared His Father. His Father loved Him. He loved His Father perfectly. He obeyed Him. And He wanted more than anything to please Him. He feared the Lord. So, we mentioned at first we fear the Lord by turning to Him in His Word, right? Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus fought against the devil, right, in the desert against temptation by using what? The Word of God. And, and Jesus called out the sin of His day regularly by quoting Old Testament prophecies, but then Jesus is also the fulfillment of those prophecies. Jesus quoted the Old Testament over 75 times, I believe, to teach to reprove, to correct, and to train in righteousness. He turned to the Word. And then we see in John 1, Jesus Himself is the Word, the living Word of God. We said that we fear the Lord by trusting in His providence. Well, what, what did Jesus do? Jesus, His whole life, trusted His Father's perfect plan to redeem the world by His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension. And Jesus cried out in the garden. He said, Father, if You are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Even knowing his certain demise and brutal death, Jesus sought the Lord and trusted in his providence. And we also said, Fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord is walking in his power, but what did Jesus do there? He walked every single moment of his life, trusting the Holy Spirit's power and guidance. That's what he did to direct him to fulfill his mission. And I'm going to say this again. You might say, well, that's Jesus. He's perfect, right? The same Spirit is within each and every one of us that believes in him. Know that. And we also said we fear the Lord by overflowing with his grace. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus did nothing short of the perfect and divine will of God coming to live here, to live perfectly, to rescue His covenant people by His blood. His grace is not going to stop flowing to us that know and love Him. So look to Jesus if you want to know what the fear of the Lord looks like. You know, we've also mentioned the things that, the, the characteristics that we take on as we don't fear the Lord in our lives 
how it can make us callous and paranoid and anxious. It reminds me of um, a hobbit, a hobbit named Smeagol. Anybody remember that name? Smeagol was once a hobbit, right? And, and if anybody's really into Lord of the Rings, you need to correct me. We can do it later over there. You hear about Smeagol in the writings of Tolkien and the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings trilogy. Smeagol was a hobbit who happened upon a ring one day. A ring of power. A ring that gave him all the things that he thought he wanted and needed. However, all the time that he contained the ring, what did it do to him? It transformed him. It made him angry. It made him paranoid. It made him bitter. It made him hate himself and everyone else. Paranoia and pain grew in Smeagol. A burden really heavy to carry for him. You don't really meet Smeagol directly, I don't, I don't think, in the story. You meet Gollum because that's who he became. Gollum, a monster. Because he carried all of this anxiety, this fear, this pain, this false promise he had of life within himself. We don't have to live that way. And I feel like there's certain, some people here that, in a crowd this size, that have severe anxiety, fear, burdens, and are just weary. We don't have to live that way. I'm not saying that the life of a believer is happy-go-lucky all the time. It's not. And those things do come. But as we learn to fear the Lord and to love Him and to trust in Him, and first and foremost, as David did, to surrender to Him, well, it's not just us carrying that ring anymore, is it? The Lord's carrying us. If we'll surrender to Him daily, if we'll listen to Him, seek Him in His Word, follow His commands, trust in His power, and overflow the grace that He gives to us, we can live in the right fear of God every day. If we want to fear the Lord rightly, we look to Jesus because He did it. He did it perfectly. Would you pray with me?